The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. This morning, I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, and that is uh, between the books of Ezra and Esther. I'll give you a few minutes in case you need to consult your table of contents. Lord willing, uh, we'd like to spend some time in the book of Nehemiah, and I hope you know the general story of Nehemiah. We hope the Lord will bless us to dig into the beautiful lessons that are here in this book. But um, the book of Nehemiah is uh, Nehemiah is a cupbearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes, and the Lord burdens him to present before the king a desire to go home and rebuild the, the broken walls of Jerusalem. And there are many obstacles. There are uh, enemies that try to threaten, that try to ridicule, that try to persecute, but the people are united in, in their commitment to rebuild this wall, and they are blessed by the Lord to accomplish this task of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem in 52 days. Only 52 days, less than two months. And an amazing amazing accomplishment uh, not necessarily an accomplishment of these men we're thankful for their uh, their diligence to work hard uh, to lay lay those stones but uh, as we're told in Psalm 127 in verse 1 except the Lord build the house they labor in vain that build it and unless the Lord strengthened them and upheld them and fueled them by his Holy Spirit they would not have been uh, successful in the task at all, let alone in the amazing time period of 52 days. So the book of Nehemiah, um, I want to kind of set for you the, uh, the historical context of where we find this book. Um, even though it's kind of in the middle of your Old Testament, it is actually... Uh, corresponds to some of the, the latest periods in the Old Testament. So uh, if you remember, <clears throat> there are uh, three separate uh, exiles of the nation of Judah. If you remember, there's a split in the kingdom. You have the northern ten tribes, and then you have the southern tribes that are primarily known as Judah, and the northern tribes go into Assyrian captivity long before uh, Judah goes into Babylonian captivity. But uh, they are prophesied and they have to endure 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And there are three separate exiles, okay, three separate time periods that the inhabitants of Israel were exiled and taken to Babylon, the first of those in about 605 B.C., and that, that corresponds to Daniel and his chief friends being exiled in that first group. Then you have a second group maybe around... 597 B.C., and then the more, more prominent one, the final destruction of Jerusalem is 586 B.C., and the, the city was destroyed by Babylon, and then you have uh, 
the rest of the nation either killed or taken into Babylonian captivity. Now, if you remember 70 years of Babylonian captivity, they neglected 70 years or 70 cycles uh, of neglecting the seventh year rest, the Sabbath. Every seven years, they were supposed to allow the land to rest, right? And they didn't do that. So the Lord uh, took them off of the land, or at least not every person was removed from the land during that 70-year period. But uh, during this beginning of the, the Babylonian captivity of the Babylonian exile began in that first exile in 605. Okay, so now you have three exiles, and then you have three returns. You have three separate time periods uh, that people were led, men were led, to lead groups back to Jerusalem. The first of those is Zerubbabel. So you have that 70 years of captivity. It began in 605 B.C., and then it ended in 536 B.C. with the decree of Cyrus the Great allowing. Uh, it's amazing how in so many of these Old Testament instances the Holy Spirit moved these kings that uh, we don't know their uh, eternal state. We don't know if they were children of God or not, but the Lord moved these men who in many ways uh, exhibited very ungodly actions in, in their reign. He moved them to show great tenderness and show great favoritism toward these uh, Jews that were in bondage. So Cyrus the Great is moved to give a decree that was led by Zerubbabel for them to return to rebuild the temple. And then you have another return that's detailed in the book of Ezra. Actually, Zerubbabel's return is in the first portion of the book of Ezra. And then the second return, maybe around 486 BC, was led by Ezra to return. And then there's a 13-year period between Ezra's return and then Nehemiah's return in 445 B.C. And Ezra is still around, and he's the one who conducts the worship service in Nehemiah chapter 8 after the work of the temple is completed. And then when you get to the last chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, we find that they become complacent when Nehemiah's leadership is removed and the problems that we find in Nehemiah chapter 13 correspond to the prophecy and the problems that are being dealt with in the book of Malachi. Okay, so I want you to think about that. Malachi, as we know, is the last book of the Old Testament and the last prophecy of the Old Testament before the 400 silent years that God did not give any prophecy until John the Baptist in the New Testament, right? So even though this book is, is situated in the center of your, uh, of your Old Testament, this is the, the last time period, that corresponding with the book of Malachi, the last time period in the Old Testament prior to the 400 silent years, okay? <clears throat> so in uh, the book of, uh, of Nehemiah, um, he is a cupbearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes, and he receives word back from Jerusalem that the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire, and he's burdened and he's overwhelmed with that because he has a, a burden and a love for Mount Zion, for uh, his natural homeland, and 
he, uh, Lord willing, will consider this in a future message regarding his prayer in uh, chapter 1. But we find from the time period of when he was found out about this, when he was notified of the walls being broken down, to when he first presents his petition to Artaxerxes, we find that he prays in private for four months. Prays in private for four months. And then finally, he's so overwhelmed with this, he finally allows the burdens of his heart to show up on his face and his countenance is is uh, downtrodden before Artaxerxes and then the Lord gives him this amazing open door, this amazing opportunity um, for the king who trusted him, Artaxerxes trusted him, this cupbearer that would drink the, the drink of the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned and um, he came to respect him and and care for him over a period of time. And then the Lord opens this door for, for the Persian king to ask, what are you burdened about? And then he prays in the middle of that conversation. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And that's, that's very important for us to have private, fervent devotions in prayer during that four-month period, right? But uh, I know many times I neglect, especially in the middle of, of important conversations, I need to be praying in the back of my head in the midst of that conversation. I think that's a great lesson that we find from Nehemiah right there. He is, he is requested of the king, what are you burdened about? And immediately in the back of his head, he just said, Lord, help me. <laughs> Lord, give me the right words just very quickly in the back of his mind. And I know I, I need to have those kind of prayers going in my, that's what praying without ceasing means. <laughs> you don't have time to be on your knees with your eyes closed all the time, but in the midst of your conversations, just saying, Lord, help me, Lord, guide me, Lord, guide my speech, Lord, guide my tongue, and allow me to say things that are profitable and not uh, detrimental. So now the, the heart of the Persian king is moved in an abundant way to where not only does he allow Nehemiah to leave, and he ends up you know, giving him leave to go, and he ends up staying as the governor of uh, Israel for at least 12 years before he goes back to Persia. So at a minimum, he's giving him a few months of leave, uh, but he ends up staying for 12 years. So he ends up losing his trusted cupbearer. Um, but not only did he allow him to go, the Lord gave Nehemiah enough boldness to ask before Artaxerxes, would you be willing to fund uh, all of the wood that we're going to need for rebuilding the wall and all of the stones? Would you be willing to essentially give me the Persian government credit card? And would you be willing to pay for all of the materials that are necessary for the rebuilding? And guess what? The spirit moved on this Persian king to say yes. So not only was he allowed to go, but the Persian government funded this. Praise God, right, for his movement in that, in that situation. Um, so what we want to do this morning is, uh, is give you an overview of the book of Nehemiah, um, some thoughts to be considering, as Lord willing, we will uh, go through this, as we always do as we consider a new portion of Scripture. I hope that you will read this book in its entirety as we go through it, so therefore, you'll be familiar, <clears throat> more familiar with the overall story as we dig into the individual verses in this book. But I want to give you a broad overview and highlight some specific wording, some specific words in, in a certain text that I think really highlight some of the themes 
of the book of Nehemiah. So to kind of give you a big picture of, of how amazing of a significant work this was in rebuilding this wall. You know, we, we say, oh, they rebuilt the Jerusalem wall. And we think, oh, well, I've, I've put out a fence on our land before. You know, I've built, I've built a fence. And wow, good job. You know, 52 days, you rebuilt the wall. I want you to understand how big this wall was, okay? Uh, now, this wall was broken down. Now, was it totally leveled? Probably not. As there were probably some areas that had a little bit more. Some areas were leveled all the way to the ground. And if you, if you kind of look um, at the various history of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, you'll find that there are time periods where the walls were expanded. And then, uh, obviously, those, those walls got broken down over a period of time. So you have um, the walls uh, that were established in, in uh, David's day, and he expanded those walls a little bit. And then Solomon expanded those walls a little bit. But, it, but the primary person that expanded the walls, I guess, in the, the largest uh, length uh, during the Old Testament history is, is Hezekiah. Now, this is all assumptions, and we don't know specifically. Um, and so what I did was just kind of took an average of, uh, in my head, an average of what everybody kind of said, just to give you a ballpark. The, the, uh, I think it's always beneficial for me to try to put this stuff in context. So in, in Hezekiah's day, a king uh, a few generations before the Babylonian captivity, before that, those walls were destroyed, a lot of people believe that the length of this wall was two and a half miles long, okay? Two and a half miles. But the wall was broken down, and it seems like many people would say that uh, Hezekiah expanded the wall to, um, he, he added a broad wall, and he expanded it um, to a larger area. But it seems like that the consensus would say that as this wall was rebuilt, they didn't necessarily rebuild it to the same uh, coverage area as Hezekiah did. They rebuilt it to the wall back in Solomon's day, okay? So as an estimate, and none of this you know, is precise, obviously, but just to give you a ballpark, um, if they rebuilt it back to the same area of Solomon's day, this wall would have been about 1.5 miles long collectively, okay? 1.5 miles. And if a wall is going to be any good to protect a city, then it, then it has to be tall enough to not allow people to just jump over it, right? And it makes it very clear that it was at least wide enough, the walls were at least wide enough after construction, that groups of men were able to walk on the top of those walls, okay? So just as a general ballpark, I think we could say that this wall was probably 25 feet high and eight feet wide, okay? 25 feet high, eight feet wide, a mile and a half long. And they did it in 52 days, right? <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Well, it's amazing how little individual diligence what we're going to find in, in Nehemiah chapter 3 is that the way that this great work was accomplished, I mean, if you, if you 
there's a reason why the enemies of, of Israel ridiculed him that this is a ridiculous task for you to even accomplish. It's ridiculous for you to even think you could do this. And it would be absolutely ridiculous if you told him on the front end that we can get it done in less than two months. So the, the ridicule of the enemies, Sambalad and Tobiah, the most prominent of those enemies, their, their ridicule, their original ridicule, was fairly valid. <laughs> uh, there, there were parts of it when they were constructing it. They said if a fox just ran through there, it'd tear the whole thing down. I don't think they were lying. I mean, I think that it was in a fragile state that it was, it was, it was not solidified yet that if some little bitty animal must have ran, it may have collapsed the whole thing. Some of their ridicule was not... Uh, was not unvalidated. I mean, it was it was true. And if and if someone said, "I'm going," that's why Nehemiah kind of kept things quiet when he came back to town. He didn't immediately just announce we're going to rebuild this wall. He he assessed the situation in private with wisdom and with prayer before he told the people. But even when when he told them, their first reaction was like, "We can't do this." And the reason why is because they couldn't, right? In and of their stuff, they couldn't do that. It, the task was too, I mean, look how big this wall is, a mile and a half, 25 feet tall, eight feet wide, and we're gonna just get it done anyway, but get it done in 52 days? Anyone would look at that and say, that's impossible. Well, the Lord uh, works pretty well in those kind of circumstances, right? <laughs> with men, many things are, are, are not possible, but with God, all things are possible, right? So, um, The Lord allowed them to do this really impossible work and, and do this impossible work in, uh, in record time. But the way that that happened, the way that the, that the overall task was accomplished in record time was by individual diligence of each person to just focus on I'm rebuilding the wall across from my house. Now, one person can't rebuild a mile and a half, right? Five people can't rebuild a mile and a half. But what I can do is this little bitty section of, of 50 feet that's in front of my house, I can work really hard on my section during, these, uh, during this time period. And if I work really hard on my section and everybody else works hard on their section, guess what happens at the end of the day? <laughs> the whole wall is built. That's what happened. That's what happened. I mean, the whole, the whole task was too great to assume that one person could do this. It just took individual diligence in their individual section. And by the end of the day, look what happened. They rebuilt this wall that was an impossible task by just daily diligent devotion and focusing on their portion of the wall and rebuilding across from their house. So, um... I want to highlight um, portions of Scripture. We talked about Nehemiah chapter 1, the movement of the Lord to tender the heart of Artaxerxes, to allow him to not just return, but to allow the Persian government to pay for it. And then he returns, this is in Nehemiah chapter 2, and he returns and he didn't tell anyone what he was doing for three days. At, at night he went and assessed the situation. Uh, there are so many attributes of godly leadership that are displayed by Nehemiah in the midst of, of this book. And one of them is, is wisdom. And he didn't just uh, 
He didn't send word ahead of what he was doing. He showed up and he didn't draw attention to, to himself. He went and he assessed the situation himself and kept things to himself and quietly prayed as he was uh, giving, receiving clarity on this vision and this burden and this work that the Lord had called him to lead. He didn't do the work himself. He just led the people and the people uh, were blessed to follow his lead. So he goes out by night and he evaluates the situation and displays great wisdom in the way that he approaches it. And then in, he says in uh, verse 12, Nehemiah chapter 2 and in verse 12, And I arose in the night, I and some men that were with me, neither told I any man. And notice, notice the reason why he was so moved to leave the comfort and the security of a, a very prominent and no doubt probably well compensated job as the king's cupbearer. He was willing to do that because he said, neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. The Lord had laid a burden on him. And when the Lord lays a burden on your heart, the Lord has a way of uh, making you willing in the day of his power, right? When he lays a burden on you, and especially if you choose, uh, there are examples in Scripture where people chose to go the opposite of their burden. Jonah being the most prominent of them, right? And none of us want to experience what Jonah had to experience because he rebelled against the burden and the conviction of heart that the Lord had put on him. But the reason why Nehemiah was so diligent and he, he ignored the detractors, he ignored the ridicule, he ignored the persecution. The reason why is because he knew that God had placed a burden on his heart. And I will not be detracted in serving God and fulfilling that burden. God had put this on my heart. And the Lord just opens doors at every single step of the way to, to allow him to lead the people to accomplish this impossible work. So now, <clears throat> also in Nehemiah chapter 2, and then in verse 18, he goes and he tells the people his burden, I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me. You know, um, I think that the people would have been really excited. If he just showed up and he said, okay, guys, um, I think we need to rebuild this wall. You know, some people probably would probably would have been supportive. Some people probably wouldn't have. But when he goes and tells them, listen, not only do I have a burden to rebuild this wall, but when he shows up in town with ridiculous amounts of wood and ridiculous amounts of stone, and he says, not only am I here to rebuild the wall, but the Persian government gave us all this stuff to rebuild the wall, I think people would have realized there's something bigger here going on. God's in this. God's in this if he's showing up with all of these materials that are supplied by the Persian government. So I told them that the hand of my God was good upon me. They were able to see that because the Lord had moved this Persian king to give him the, the supplies and the materials to be able to build this. And they saw that the, uh, the hand of my God was upon me and also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And the people saw the vision. They they bought into the vision, and they said, let us rise up and build. Now, you need to have godly leaders that set the tone and set a vision, but none of this matters. None of this matters. How do you think if there was four or five people that were committed to this work, how do you think the rebuilding of this wall would have went? would have never got done, right? 
But the Lord moved the totality of the people where they said, God is in this work. God's on our side, and we will rise up and build. We will rise up and build. And see, that's what happens in the next chapter is that we won't read through Nehemiah chapter 3, but the way that it's worded is that this person worked on this section down to this section. And this person, as soon as this person's section stopped, this is where the next person started working. And then when that person's section stopped, this is where the next person uh, started working. And it says in almost all of these, it says, they worked over against their own house. In their section of the community, in their section of the wall, you know, it's not my place to fix the wall on the other side of the city. No, I'm just going to focus on the wall that's right by my house. And the people were committed to that work. Now, I want you to understand, as we go through the book of Nehemiah, what this is describing is the building, as we've spent time in the book of Acts, and the growth and the expansion of the kingdom of God, this is describing attributes and principles of the way in which God builds his kingdom. Okay? We've been looking from the book of Acts of how, how does God send revival? How does God grow his body? How does God grow his church? Well, from the book of Nehemiah, we can see that every single person is vitally important. And when all those people are on the same page and they're all committed and they're all devoted and they're all in unity and we're, we have a clarity of my responsibility and a clarity of my burden. It's not my burden to fix somebody else's portion of the wall. It's not my responsibility to fix somebody else's house. We all have areas in our individual lives, in our individual homes, in our families, in our relationships, in every area of our life. We all have areas where there are holes and broken areas that need to be restored. Myself included. I hope the Holy Spirit can give us clarity about where those holes are. And boy, think about the purpose of the wall, right? The purpose of the wall back in the Old Testament was clearly a defense from enemies, right? And there's no area where the, the saying, uh, you're only as strong as your weakest link, is more evident than in a wall. Because what, what's the enemy going to do? The enemy in you know this old-timey warfare, what are they going to do? They're going to send out spies, and they're going to find the areas, if there's a, wall, a, a portion of that wall where there's a crack, where there's an opening, they're going to realize that that's our opportunity to get behind the protective border of the wall to infiltrate uh, this city, right? So as with the picture of the body, every single member of the body is important. And if one portion of that body is diseased, it's going to eventually hurt the whole body, right? It's the way God wired our natural bodies. It's the way that God has designed the spiritual body of Christ. But how much more so is that true in the building of this wall, right? You are responsible for your individual portion of the wall in the kingdom of God. And if there are holes in my corner, I want you to understand, Satan is 
always testing the walls of Zion. He's always testing the walls of the church to see where the weak links are. And it's vitally important that we understand the church as a whole is only as strong as my portion of the wall. Okay? It's only as strong as how diligent I am to make sure that if there is an area of brokenness and division in my portion of the wall, I have to be doing my best to, to mend that because otherwise I'm going to be the target. You're going to be the target of Satan anyway. <laughs> but if you, are, if you have a, a weakness and a fracture in your portion of the wall, Satan is going to galvanize all of his Sambalats and Tobias to focus on your section, right? Now, it's up to the rest of the church to make sure if someone is struggling, we've we got to keep our own section in order. But once we've got our own section in order, we need to help other people in their section too, right? But the church is only as strong as your individual portion of the wall. Now, what happens if we all have, and we all have them to varying degrees and in different areas. There are all areas of brokenness in all of our lives and all of our walls that need to be repaired. But what happens when all of the people start mending those fences together at the same time? <laughs> That's called revival, right? That's called rebuilding a wall in 52 days and the movement of the Holy Spirit in a way and doing, doing accomplishing works that there was no way that they could do in and of themselves. When everybody's doing it themselves individually, that's called revival in the kingdom, right? So in Nehemiah chapter 3, we find that they just focused on the portion of the wall that was by their house. And that's the only thing we can, we can encourage other people we can, uh, if we have a relationship and a closeness with them, we might instruct them and rebuke them according to the word of God if it's a severe situation. But for the most part, you just need to lead by example. Allow them to look at your section of the wall, right, and say, you know what, I see the way that they're doing this. I see the way they're... Allow them to follow your example, okay? That's the main way that we lead is follow. That's what Nehemiah did. He led by example. And... Thankfully, the people were able to follow his example. So the people had, this is in Nehemiah chapter 4 and in verse 6, we have uh, Sambalat and Tobiah ridiculing them. Uh, we saw this from the book of Acts, and it doesn't just apply in the book of Acts and in the kingdom. It applies all throughout the Bible in every area of life. When God is, is working and guiding to do a great work in the kingdom, there will always be difficulties and persecution and enemies and ridicule. You remember the pattern of the book of Acts? Praise God that everywhere they went, the Lord added to the kingdom. Everywhere. Because they had a diligence and a boldness to preach the word of God. Everywhere they went, the Lord added to the kingdom. But everywhere they went, they encountered persecution. Everywhere. And they counted themselves worthy that we are worthy to suffer shame for the glorious name of Jesus Christ. But one of, the, one of the themes of the book of Nehemiah is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He says, I'm remaining in Ephesus because an effectual and open door is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Whenever there's an open door for the king, whenever God is going to grow his kingdom, it's always going to be hard. There's always going to be persecution. There's always going to be adversaries. And we just have to understand that. We can't get discouraged when... Uh, it, and it, even in the early stages, this also gives a pattern, by the way. Uh, Satan's, uh, there's no new thing under the sun, and Satan's wiles and his, and his tactics and his, 
his ways in which he, he attempts to uh, deceive and, and uh, thwart mighty works in the kingdom. His pattern is, is always the same. It starts out with just ridicule, mocking. And sometimes we're so sensitive in America, we give up with that, right? Oh, no, we don't want people to think negative. We don't want to be made fun of. We don't want. But that's just the first stage. Well, they just ignore that. They, they said, uh, they're just being ridiculed. They're being mocked. And they said, well, we don't care what these people think. Why? Because they understood God had called them to a great work. I don't, I don't care what people say about me because God has called me to a great work. But then if the ridicule doesn't work, then you have threats. You have threats of physical violence from Sambalat and Tobiah. And then that didn't detract them either. They weren't afraid of that. They, they, made, uh, they responded to that when they threat, threat, uh, made threats of physical violence. They set half of the people to be on guard to watch for the protection of the rest of the people that were working. They, they re, uh, reorganized their shifts to where half of the people are keeping guard to protect. And then after those people were done, they shifted back again, and the people that were previously on watch, they worked on the wall. So they, they responded, and that, that's always wise to do, right? I mean, if you receive a threat, you respond appropriately. You don't always just stand up and say, well, God's going to protect me. I mean, yeah, he will protect you, but he also gave us, gave us common sense, right? I mean, there were times where uh, Paul was threatened, and he could have stood up and said, the Lord's with me. But many times he said, you know what? I'm going to get out of town. I'm just going to go to the next town. I'll come back later, <laughs> but for right now, I'm going to get out of town. So the Lord gives us wisdom. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not like if you're ever uh, threatened that you just don't respond. Well, not, respond in a wise way, but don't let it detract you from the greater work that God has called us to do, right? But you start with ridicule, threat of physical violence, and then when, they don't, when that doesn't detract them, now they're trying to distract them. They're trying to deceive uh, them to call them... Uh, in the early portions of Nehemiah chapter 6, they're trying to get Nehemiah to come and they're deceiving him to try to meet with him, to try to kill him. But he's too focused on the work. I'm doing a great work. I can't, I can't leave this great work. Uh, and he was not deceived to go into that meeting where he would be hurt or injured because he, he, his eye was single. He was focused on, on this calling that God had called him to. And then, when none of that worked, they threaten that, oh, we're going to write the king. And the kings, you're just trying to set yourself up as a king. And the, the Persian king, well, <laughs> Nehemiah wasn't too concerned about that, right? Because that's why the whole reason he, he's here. is because the Persian king gave him license to come. So all they're doing is just threatening. They're threatening. And God's people press through that and... They are focused on the work, and they don't let that detract them. But then, if Satan, if Satan's external persecution don't, doesn't work, then comes internal division. If external persecution doesn't work, then internal division. And well, I, I would say internal division is always his first option. <laughs> it's never his, his backup plan. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, we find, now the timing of this, they complete the wall, okay? They complete the wall in 52 days, and... The particular month that they did it in, it's in the month of September, okay? Roughly September. Uh, their, their months don't align the way that ours, ours align. Uh, but just for a ballpark, we'll say this is, uh, <clears throat> lines up with our months, and it's the 10th month, uh, the 10th day of this month. So let's just say mid-September, okay? 
Mid-September is when they um, completed the work. Well, that means from later, mid to later July to mid-September is when they were doing this work. Well, the wives got involved, and the wives started saying, guys, it's harvest time. You can't be wasting time building this wall because we got to go get the crops so we can feed the kids. And not only do we have to feed the kids, we've got mortgages to pay, and we paid, we mortgage just so we can pay our taxes. We can't pay our mortgage. We can't pay our taxes. We can't feed our kids. Guys, you don't have time to be wasting time on this wall because it's harvest time. <laughs> well, in commendation for these men that were focused on this, they said, I, I love you, wife, but God has called us to a great work. <laughs> the Lord, if, if the Lord is calling us to do this great work in the midst of harvest time, he's going to provide for us, right? We don't need to be afraid that our kids are going to starve. So if external persecution doesn't work, Satan will always stir up internal division, even among the families, you know. Uh, it was the wives pressuring the husband out. It was a valid point. If I was a wife, I'd at least <laughs> uh, bring it up. I mean, uh, uh, I hope that the, the Spirit allowed them to get on board after it was over, but hey, you know, we, we at least need to have the conversation. <laughs> it's not wrong for them to bring it up. That's a valid point. We got bills to pay. Uh, we got taxes to pay. We got children to feed. You at least need to bring it up. But we hope that the Lord allowed these, these, these wives to understand that the Lord was guiding them to do not just, not just a great work for them, but this was a generational decision, right? This was, things, this was a thing, a work that was going to protect generations to come. It, it's bigger than me. That's what those men understood. It's not just about me. This is bigger than me. And I can't detract from this work that God has called me to because it's not just about me. <laughs> and how can I look my, my neighbor in the, in the eye if he's out there diligently working on his section of the wall and I'm just sitting in my house because my, my wife was a little upset with me? No, we're all in this together because we're doing a great work that's bigger than me. It's a generational work, okay? Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 6, this is summarized. <clears throat> it says, So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together, and the half thereof, and this is why it worked, okay? For the people had a mind to work. The people, individually, all of the people, all of the men, and all the women that supported their men. They all had a mind to work. And when everyone is on the same page in unity and they all have a mind to work, the Lord can do things that we would never expect. No one would look at this and say, uh, it would be an unrealistic goal in a natural sense to build this massive of a wall in 52 days. It just, it wouldn't happen. You wanna know why it happened? The people had a mind to work and the Lord blessed their work. That's why. Then we have uh, the opposition and we have the threats um, and then they, they respond to that they threaten physical violence and then they set watches half of them are on guard and half of them are working and then they swap <clears throat> and then Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 17 uh, brother Charles Spurgeon uh, minister in England from centuries ago his, his uh, 
newsletter uh, that's very well known was entitled the the sword and the trowel well it comes from the book of Nehemiah because with one hand they had a sword in one hand to protect themselves and in the other hand they were working with the wall which which tells us that we always have to be so sober and vigilant and always working with uh, working on the, the work of the wall but also having that sword of the spirit in our hand right to combat the wiles of Satan so a, a diligence and a focus to remain uh, committed to work on the wall but also uh, working and walking circumspectly and having wisdom to assess the dangers that are around you yes I'm working on the wall but I've, I've also got a sword in my other hand to protect myself in case one of our enemies comes unawares chapter 5 is the internal division that we talked about the wives and certain of the nobles were pressuring them with again all valid points that it's harvest season we got mortgages we got taxes we got children to feed and we can't be wasting our time on this wall well the Lord not only provided for their family and, and another thing by the way what what Nehemiah does in the middle of this um, he rebukes them for charging uh, interest, in, which they were forbidden to do in the Old Testament law. You were not commanded or not allowed, not permitted to charge usury or interest to other Israelites. You could do it to external parties, but you were not allowed to do it. And so they were disobeying God's commandment uh, by them charging usury. But also they said, we're not going to be able to provide our families. We're not going to be able to feed our kids. Well, what Nehemiah did is because he was there as an official ambassador for the Persian king, he had all of this food that was provided to him on a daily basis because he was there on the provision. And what Nehemiah did is he didn't eat any of that food that was provided for him for the Persian king. He gave it to all the rest of the people. So uh, the, uh, the people, the wives, were saying, we ain't going to be able to feed our kids. What did Nehemiah do? He took all this stuff that was allotted to him for the Persian king, and he gave it to all the people to make sure everybody had something to eat, right? Which is a, an amazing example of selfless, sacrificial leadership. Those are the people that people are going to follow, right? We, can't, we don't think we can feed our kids, and you have all this allotment of food from the Persian king, and you give it all to us to absolve our concerns? <laughs> Boy, those are the kind of people you'd... You'd follow, follow into battle anywhere, right? And Nehemiah sets that, that great example and tone um, that the people are willing to follow. Okay, so then you have the external threats, again, from Sambalat and Tobiah in Nehemiah chapter 6. And his focus there, Nehemiah chapter 6 and in verse 3, uh, he sent messengers unto them. They're trying to, again, get him to go to a meeting where they would hope to kill him. And he said, I'm not going to go because I am doing a great work. His focus was on the greater work of the kingdom. And then they finished in 52 days. Nehemiah chapter 6 and in verse 15. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. Now, there have been enemies, especially Sambalat and Tobiah, that had been trying to tracked and extinguished this work the whole time, but even they realize that this work was of God. 16. And it came to pass that when all of our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, 
they were much cast down in their own eyes. They've been trying to destroy this work, and the Lord overrules it, and they do this work, this impossible task in a, in a miraculous amount of time, and they were just bummed out because they've been trying to tear this whole thing down the whole time, and they were much distraught and cast down in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Even the enemies were able to look at this and say, Wow, they didn't do that by themselves. <laughs> That's the power of Jehovah God that they've been talking about. And in Nehemiah chapter 7, there's a whole lot of names, a whole lot of people that are listed. And it, it literally lists off either individually or in summary group every individual person that worked on the wall. And I want you to understand, no great works are accomplished in the kingdom of God without individual private devotion every single person is vitally important and the holy spirit goes out of its way to highlight the individual people that made the sacrifice for this great work to be accomplished every single person is vitally important in the kingdom of god and in the church then in nehemiah chapter 8 they get out the book of the law ezra the scribe stands up and he reads the the law and he opens it up. He stands up on a pulpit of wood above the people. The only reason why he did that was just for visibility, right? Uh, there's not anything special about the wood. Our pulpit's not, not very high because we don't, we don't have a lot of uh, vi- visibility problems in the back. So our pulpit doesn't have to be very high. But there's not anything special about the wood up here than the wood, uh, the rest of the wood in the floor of the church building. The only reason why we have a pulpit is solely for visibility, right? Literally, that's the only reason that we have this pulpit is so people can just see better in the back. And we have that pattern right here too, that he stands up on a pulpit just so people could see him for the people in the back. They could have better visibility. Then we have this beautiful picture here of New Testament worship, really. All the people gathered together in verse 1 as one man, right? You have family-integrated worship. You have all of them coming together. A man, a man of God stands up on a pulpit of wood, and he, in verse 8, they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense thereof and caused them to understand the reading. And that's essentially what we try to do in the Word of God, right? We stand up, we open the Word of God, and I just want to read the Word of God distinctly and give you the sense of it so you can understand what God says, right? That That's, that's preaching. That's that's the ministry of the word. Very simplistic. And now, because they opened up the law and they realized all of their shortcomings, their initial response, as it really should be, is that um, in verse 9, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They realized we, we have come short of the glory of God. We have, we've offended God's law. But then, at least in this time, now you need to repent, you need to be converted, and if the Holy Spirit shows you your shortcomings, you need to fix them. But today, (laughs) he says, today is not a day of mourning. (laughs) Today is not a day of weeping. Why? Because we just rebuilt the wall through the power of God. So today, is there's there's a time for conviction and repentance and weeping. But he said, today, verse 10, go your way and eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions uh, unto them for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy unto our God neither be ye sorry for the joy of the Lord is your strength you know that verse right the joy of the Lord
Lord is your strength. Now, I'm glad that you feel a conviction of sin, but today is not a day of mourning. <laughs> today is not a day of weeping. Why? It's a day of joy because God has strengthened our hands to do this mighty work to his own glory and to his own holiness and power, right? Today is a day of joy in celebration for what God has done. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I want to, I want to highlight um, a couple verses um, that I believe summarize um, some of the themes of the book of, of Nehemiah. I want to go to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Now, their initial response to the preaching of the Word of God was to weep. And they clearly were convicted and saw that there were areas of God's law that they were not obeying properly. And they realized appropriately that we need to repent of that. But he said, look, today is a day of rejoicing and celebration and joy. Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord turned again, the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. I mean, there's no way anybody, God's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, right? I mean, I, I know that Nehemiah had a burden and he had a hope and he had to deal with a lot of obstacles, but I don't even think in his wildest imaginations we could have got this thing done in 52 days, right? I, can't, I don't even think he could think that successfully. I, he hoped he could get the work done, but... It wasn't even probably in his head that they could get the work done in 52 days. It's like a dream. It, it's like it's not even real. When the Lord turned again the captivity, we were like them that dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our, joy, and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. Right? Even the heathen realized that it wasn't really anything special about these men. The God did this. God moved among them. The Lord hath done great things for us. Verse 3, whereof we are glad. <laughs> the joy of the Lord is our strength. Turn again, our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Verse 5, we know this well. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now, that, that applies in, in the loss of loved ones. But don't miss the context here. What this is really saying here is that those... The Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. What he's really talking about here is people that have wept in the midst of captivity. People that have wept in the midst of the labor of the work. I mean, think about, there were some tears, no doubt, that were cried in the middle of those 52 days. There was weeping in the midst of this great work where the Lord was turning it. And now, if you've sown those tears in the midst of the work now... When, when you see the providence of God unfold in this powerful way, now you have the privilege of reaping in joy. You've sown tears. I tell you, the way that the kingdom grows is by sowing in tears. <laughs> now, there's going to come a time for joy. There's going to come a time for joy. But if we're not sowing tears, don't expect abundant joy. Why? Because we're going to have persecution. We're going to have difficulty. And you know what? I guarantee you, those men got tired. They were physically exhausted. The work was hard. I mean, they're picking up rocks to build a wall. I mean, this was not, this was hard work, hard manual labor. And then the time I wasn't working, I was on guard uh, keeping watch. I mean, this was hard work. And during that time period, then no doubt, they, they sowed in tears. 
oh, but during that worship service and the, the preacher reminded them the joy of the Lord is your strength, that's the day that you reap in joy. Okay? And then the next chapter, Psalm 127, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now, especially notice this, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. You want to know one of the main ways that the Lord keeps the city? Is by strong walls that protect the citizens. And throughout the rest, one of the main ways that we build the kingdom is through the rest of the chapter. We hope that God will move for external people to be converted. But one of the main ways we build the kingdom is through our posterity. Low children are a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Again, one of the primary ways that the Lord grows his kingdom is through the raising up of a godly generation. Isaiah chapter 61, <clears throat> to conclude, Isaiah chapter 61. <clears throat> now this is such a great example of why the Bible is so hard to interpret, especially prophecy. We see in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus stands up in that synagogue on the day of Nazareth, in, in, in Nazareth and uh, he reads verse 1 and a portion of verse 2, and he, he, he reads to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then he closes the book. Now, this is in the middle of our verse in our King James Bibles, but there, there wasn't verse sections in the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah, right? But he closes the scroll right after he says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he says, today this is fulfilled in your ears. Well, where did he close it at? This is why the, the, under, the full understanding of biblical prophecy is so, is so difficult because in the middle of our verse, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the rest of the verse, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, that's not going to be fulfilled until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in the middle of one of our verses, we have fulfillment in the life of Jesus Christ, and in the rest of it is primarily fulfilled in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even though most of the, the, the fullness, the, uh, the, the, the full prophecy, the full understanding of, this, of, of these texts will be at the second coming of the Lord, I believe also we have a little bit of the blessings of heaven here in the kingdom of heaven here today. And much of this verse, I believe, applies to our blessings in the kingdom of God, too. Verse 3, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. Now, obviously that, that uh, is not going to be fully speaking of the second coming of the Lord because there's not going to be any mourning in that day, right? He give, To give them beauty for ashes. Now, that's going to happen in the second coming. But praise God, he gives us beauty for ashes here in the kingdom, too, right? So this is speaking... Uh, first of all of the kingdom of God here in time but then the greater fulfillment is heaven in, in an eternal sense okay but to appoint unto them the morning Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes and, and isn't that so I mean not only was that wall broken down that wall was burnt right there were ashes around that wall and look what happened the Lord brought great beauty from the ashes of that wall being broken down to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of God, that he may be glorified. In verse 4, they shall build the old wastes 
They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the waste cities and the desolations of many generations. The Lord blessed them to build places that were previously destroyed, that, places, that, places that were previously identified as nothing but ashes. He brought beauty out of that. And the Lord blessed their work. Now, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, is the Lord going to send angels down from heaven to build any house and to build any family? Right? Is there, are, are certain angels on contractor duty? No. You want to know how the Lord builds his house? Through us. By his enabling strength and power. But he builds his house. He builds his wall. He builds his kingdom through us. And we want to be faithful custodians of my little section of the wall. And I want you to think about the wall, the whole kingdom, the whole kingdom. And then we got our little section of the wall of Macedonia church. And then within that little section of Macedonia, you got your little section of that, of that little section, right? But the whole kingdom of God, we pray that God will strengthen our defenses against the attacks of Satan. And by we, the way we do that is by our individual devotions to build our portion of the wall in our personal lives, to build our portion of the wall in Macedonia Church. And then, when everybody's doing all that together, we see strengthening of the wall in the kingdom of God and in the church in a way that we've never seen before. And we pray that we can see clarity of some of those spiritual lessons through the book of Nehemiah and that we would have the diligence to have the sword in one hand and the travel in the other to work diligently. The people had a mind to work. And when the people have a mind to work and the Spirit's blessing and the Lord's blessing, there's a great work that can be accomplished that we would not expect in and of ourselves. And we pray if it would be His will that that would be the way the Lord would move in His kingdom for his church to be strengthened, us here individually and locally, but for the kingdom as a whole, that there not be any breaches in the wall and that we would all be diligent to take care of our portion of the wall to make sure our portion is secure and steadfast and that wall is honoring to the king, the king of Zion. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.